and welcome to the Freightvine podcast, your source for all things freight transportation. I'm Chris Kaplis, and today I'm joined by Paul Newborn, Executive Director of Food Shippers of America and President of Logistics Projects Consulting. I've known Paul for many years, and he's got over 40 years of experience in the transportation field. This includes being Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Covenant Transportation, SVP of Operations at Armada Supply Chain Solutions, VP of Transportation at Conagra Foods, VP Carrier and Capacity Management at Excel Transportation Services, and a variety of different roles at CSX, to name just a few. We'll talk about the importance of leadership in transportation and the evolving relationship between shippers and carriers across the different modes. Following my conversation with Paul, I'll be joined by Dr. Inam Ayub to discuss the truckload market update. So let's get started. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the Freightvine podcast. Chris, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today. Yeah, I don't think I've seen you in person for a couple of years. We've talked on the phone, so uh, it's good to be talking to you again. It is. Let's get started. Uh, you've been in the industry for 40 years. You must have seen a lot of change. How have you seen the industry change over the years? I came into the industry in the late 70s. Just as transportation was seeing the world turned upside down through re-regulation and deregulation, which really afforded me a great opportunity to experience firsthand some of the significant changes in how businesses sought to differentiate themselves and offer a competitive advantage. As I look back on those changes, it really reminds me of the evolution that's been going on in just about every business segment. Think about how telephone communications have changed. Mm -hmm. I remember when The only way you could make a call was from a landline. You were either in your home, you were in your office, or you're in a phone booth. And and what are those? Now we've evolved from mobile phones in a bag, which evolved to brick phones. And now we have a cell phone that's smaller than a deck of cards. That's really a computer that you happen to be able to make phone calls on. Not to mention send emails, stream movies, and do a host of other things. Right. I think the transportation industry has undergone a similar evolution with significant strides in technology, operational execution, equipment, and what I'll call management sophistication. If you think about technology and how it's touched all aspects of all businesses, but certainly all the modes in transportation, some of the key areas are operational execution, data management, metrics management, relationship management, and shipment visibility, which is really big right now. As you think about the growing sophistication of transportation, warehouse, inventory management systems, it's really greatly enhanced the ability to move more efficiently goods in freight networks and distribution networks literally around the world. If we just look at transportation management systems, there are some of us who've been around long enough to remember that when an order came in, you grabbed your spiral-bound binder, wrote down the information, and then you made a T-card for your truck dispatch, mm-hmm. right? Or, or you took a fax off the fax machine and, right. uh, you know, or it was just handled over the phone calls. And now a TMS helps you optimize your network shipments. It executes the associated carrier selection process automatically, and it removes the manual intervention of historically execution-related activities that were associated with moving products. And I think you've seen similar benefits from the deployment of warehouse and inventory management systems both which have considerably more capability than when they first launched. And the fact that these tools are now SaaS-based, operating out of the cloud, provides even greater flexibility. 
something that I, I wouldn't have even imagined 40 years ago. So, Paul, do you think that the innovation in technology, did that make it more efficient? Did that reduce the number of people required? It did both. Certainly, there were people that could be redeployed, but in some cases, there was no longer a need for the person to do the job uh, that they once did. For example, in one of my earlier companies, we had someone whose job was to take faxes uh, and, and emails as rudimentary as they were and sort of convert them over. Well, once you could automate the receipt of that information, that person was really no longer needed for that particular role. So it increased efficiency. And if you think about the elimination of keystroke entry from taking down off of a written document into a key punch system, uh, you've removed a, a potential for error as well. But yes, I think both reduction in the need for people in some roles, as well as improving the efficiency. So technology has been a big driver. How do you think that's influenced or changed the way that shippers and carriers interact? Because it used to be fairly adversarial. So uh, let me back up a little bit from that. When I first started working for the carrier side of the business, making a sale was more about the relationships you had rather than what your price was or what your operational effectiveness might have been. It was a world where ingratiation and cultivating personal relationships with the right decision maker was really the most important thing you could do because your pricing was generally set in tariffs and there was regulatory oversight. And while I still see the importance of having and establishing good relationships, the ingratiation aspect has largely been replaced with the need to demonstrate that as a carrier, you can create measurable value for your customer. And in some markets more recently, as a customer, you can provide measurable value to your carrier. And that requires more technology to help you capture the relevant metrics. And there's certainly a variety of of capable software out there that helps companies now both manage those relationships and those relevant metrics to demonstrate the value is being created. Right. It's interesting because people will still say it's a relationship business. You still have the relationship, but the relationship has changed. Who, Who you have the relationship with and also the the level of it. And so have you seen this change in the way that the sales teams are are set up? Is it a different type of person, a different role now? I certainly have seen it evolve. I believe that the sales professionals today, particularly for third parties, uh, large brokers, large asset-based carriers, are much more, I'll say, polished in their presentation. You know, they typically have a formal account planning process. They do their homework up front. They've created a methodology where they can convert the value that they want to create into financial terms, which helps right. then the customer sort of quantify, oh, I need to pick this guy. The relationships are important because at the end of the day, people still like doing business with people that they can relate with and tend to, to have a, a particular bias towards. However, most all of us have a boss. And if we're not making our boss happy by delivering the value they expect, it doesn't matter how much we might like someone or get along with someone, we may not be able to use them. Yeah. So you think the human element is still a critical part there? Because I've talked to some brokerage firms that are trying to get to a bloodless brokerage um, where it's pretty much automatic, no human interaction. Do you see that as something that's going to grow or do you do you think the human will get out of it or will always stay involved? I think that it's premature to write off 
particularly brokers as a breed. I, I do think that there's going to be some consolidation as you think about some of the tools that are out there for load matching and the ability to do things online and, and systematically. It will reduce the need for some portions of the business. But think about the Friday Friday emergency, got to have this there by Monday right. phone call. Typically, you're not going to necessarily rely on technology to do that. And technology typically has priority ticks that tell the system, okay, well, we're going to take this guy because he's more profitable than the next guy and that sort of thing. And it may be that the situation lends itself to, well, it doesn't actually follow the tick box in order to make the customer satisfied. Right. So I think there's I think people are going to be around in this business for a long time. I do think technology is going to automate or and semi-automate some of the interaction and it will facilitate a more efficient exchange, if you will, from that aspect. However, I'm not ready to say that you don't need people in this business anymore. Yeah. And it, it's funny, you mentioned load matching and doing technology. I've done this for years and, and developed systems for this. The easiest part of that is the technology and finding it and optimizing all that stuff. The hardest part is the negotiating, working with that other company, right? And it's the, you're exactly right. When something happens, there's one truck and two loads, you know? And so what do, what do you do in those situations? So, but the technology is many times the easiest thing to solve. And there are a number of companies out there that have brought to market some, I think, very effective products. Yeah. And they, they support, they don't replace necessarily. That's a good point. So let me change topics a little bit because you're kind of unique in this industry. Um, most people stay in one mode or area, but you've worked for railroads, container lines, trucking companies, 3PLs and shippers. So how has that experience across the different modes influenced how you approach the industry in general, the transportation industry? The primary value that I got from those experiences was that I got to walk in the other guy's shoes and I lived solving the problems that each one of those businesses has to face day in, day out and, and over the longer term. And getting that firsthand perspective on the challenges and issues is invaluable. And that perspective helped me better understand how to look for and find what I'll describe as mutually beneficial solutions. Mm -hmm. And I think once you really understand the other guy or the other gal, then you can really bring to bear the right set of resources and solutions that are immediately more relevant to them than sort of throwing a dart at the dartboard and hoping that you hit it. Because you, you just don't know. If you've been a, right. uh, a motor carrier all your life, no doubt you learn a lot. But if you've never had to run a production line or order raw materials or oversee a distribution center and particularly on a on a holiday weekend, it's it's just more difficult to truly appreciate some of the challenges. And because you've got a better perspective, I think you can bring a solution to the party that allows everyone to get something out of it so that you can maintain a sustainable and healthy supply chain ecosystem, if you will with your providers and your suppliers. Do you think that having that experience, especially shipper experience when you're on the carrier side, gives you instant or faster credibility with the customer? I think it depends. I think, you know, all industries have folks that are probably from Missouri and you got to show me. But right. I think 
once you get into a conversation, and I'll give you an example. Years ago, I was working for CSX Corporation, and I was in a multimodal role. I represented all of the modes that the company offered. And we were meeting with a chemical company who was having particular problems around their rail business. And the meeting started off very hostile. And the plant manager was you know, sort of going over all the details of what was wrong with the railroad and the railroad service. And I started to ask a lot of questions. And he thought I was from sort of corporate and was not really of much use. But as I asked more questions, he stopped and said, you seem to know a lot about this part of the business. And I said, well, and I explained to him sort of some of my background. And it completely changed the tone of the conversation. And, right. we, and we went from sort of, you know, browbeating to, okay, how do we fix the problem so that he can run his plant more efficiently? So I think there's certainly an element that once people recognize that you've got an informed perspective, that mm-hmm. it does bring you greater credibility because now they know this guy gets it. Yeah. Do you think there's more similarities between the modes than differences in how you work with your customers or are they dramatic differences? In my experience, I don't believe that the transportation business, regardless of mode, is complex. It can be involved, but I wouldn't describe it as complex. Each mode has a certain role for certain products and situations based ultimately on the shipper's priorities. As you know, for low cost, less time sensitive freight, you might select water or rail car. But for faster, more time sensitive freight, you might opt for, you know, truckload or team truckload or air transportation. So if you think about this as a cost service spectrum, you know, left or right in the middle depends on your business priorities and certain supply chain attributes. When you get down to the modes, they're all challenged with the same fundamental issues. How do you get the product from point A to point B in a time frame, at a cost, and in a condition that's acceptable? Once you figure that out, the operational components are a little different. For example, if you have a derailment that requires a different recovery aspect, if you have an accident on the highway, the recovery mechanisms are different, but they're fundamentally the same type of thing. Okay, I've got to get the train back on the track and get it rolling. I've got to get the truck fixed and get it back on the road and rolling. So I think from that standpoint, the the operational challenges that you face are very similar, just as they are to the solutions that you use. I think it comes down to improvising, adapting, and overcoming. Is that your Clint Eastwood uh, reference? That's my my heartbreak ridge, uh, improvise, adapt, and overcome. (laughs) Let's focus on the truckload market. I forgot that you came in right before deregulation in the late 70s. I missed that uh, pleasure. I came in about a decade later. But um, the relationship specifically in the truckload market has changed, going from you know regulated tariffs and things like that to a, a, essentially an open market where no one knew what the prices were. How have you seen the, the relationship between shippers, carriers, 3PLs, and brokers change? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? How do you see that evolving? You know, I say it continues to be a mixed bag. Um, If you think about relationships on a spectrum with transactional type activity on one end and collaborative relationships on the other, I've seen asset carriers, 3PLs, brokers, and customers at different points all along that spectrum. It really comes down, in my experience, to the relationship and business philosophy along with the owners of those processes. Because 
how they act, how they behave is how their organizations act and behave. And if you want to be transactional, and maybe that's an effective strategy, then your organization will follow your lead as the head of that group. But if you want to be more fair, more reasonable, more collaborative, again, your team will follow that. And as long as you've got that continuity of behavior, I think that dictates where you end up on that spectrum. So I think you see organizations across the board all along that spectrum. Now, in my experience, I've seen a movement gradually away from purely transactional, right, where where rate was king, because people have become to recognize that rate is important, but it's not everything. It's easy to measure, but think about the need for most companies. It's what's the total landed cost and how can I get it there, you know, in the right condition at the right time at the lowest total landed cost? Because if I pick the cheapest rate, and we'll use motor carriers as an example, but he turns out to only have a 75% tender acceptance level, and I have to run my route guide each time that he doesn't show up, I could spend more money. And then at the end of the day, when you do the math, guess what? You've actually spent more than someone who might have had better performance, but a little higher rate. Be the same thing if you had a carrier that always damaged your product. Right. There's a cost to sort of dealing with the claims issue. So I, I think it gets back to making sure you've got good relevant metrics of what success looks like for each party so that as you go into it, you're measuring something that reflects the aggregation of what you really need, which again, I'll go back to total landed cost if you're a shipper. Yeah, the challenge for that is a lot of times uh, the companies are siloed in transportation. I'm only measured on my transportation spend, uh, my budget. And so, yeah, go shifting to total landed cost makes sense. But then the, one of the challenges that I've seen is it raises it beyond their scope of control. And so it's almost a, a challenge. My boss has to be okay with me spending a little more money and I'm recognized that it's saving money somewhere else. That's very true. And that comes with education. Yeah. And, you know, to me, silos are a very ineffective way unless they have shared goals. And if they have shared goals, it's a way to sort of bridge some of that silo behavior. But it raises an earlier point that you had answering the question is you said that uh, it's almost the leadership, the attitude, the tone at the top that sets where that relationship will be on the continuum from, you know, pure relationship, pure transaction. How do you see that leadership changing or heading in, in this industry? I see it getting better. You know, if you you think about some of the work that's been done in the academic environment on collaborative relationships and partnerships, whether it's Doug Lambert out of the Ohio State University or Kate Vitasek out of the University of Tennessee, both have done subsequent work in this area of collaboration and partnerships. And they both provide a good template of ways to approach this. And they're getting a lot of interest in people you know, this just might work. And for me, it's it's sort of like drinking the Kool-Aid that tastes really good on a hot day. And hmm. you know what? I want some more of it because it works. Yeah. It doesn't work for everybody. And that's why you don't have partnerships with everybody. But if you select the right ones, if you qualify them, and again, both of these uh, academics have good, solid, sort of structured protocols for this, it can help you determine the greater likelihood of success. And the fact that you see more folks 
talking about doing things that are more balanced, more fair trade. And as you know, I do work with uh, Food Shippers of America. And we were talking as a group the other day, and we were talking about some of the challenges that we've seen. And one of our board members who works for a a food uh, processor said that one of the things they did was they actually started to provide hazard pay on their own to the drivers and the dock workers. And if you think about that, typically that's the last thing that a company will do is put money on the table, particularly for someone who's not necessarily their employer, like the truck drivers. But they recognized that they were asking these drivers to sort of take a risk and they needed them to move their product. And this was a way they could help you know, compensate them for taking that risk. Now, whether all the drivers accepted it or not, don't know. But the fact that yeah. they initiated that. A couple of years ago, I talked to another food company, it was a food distributing company, and they actually spent about $200,000 in improvements in their driver lounge facilities at their largest shipping location so that drivers would feel more comfortable. That So they had clean restrooms, they had places to get something to drink, something to eat. And again, that's an investment on their part. So those kinds of behaviors tell me that some of the mindset is changing in moving away from being purely transactional and and what's only good for me to sort of, you know, what's good for everybody at the end of the day. It's interesting. I was at a conference um, last year, back when people were allowed to meet with each other, and uh, someone mentioned that they had tried to do that. They created a lounge and everything, but they found that the drivers would just hang out. And, uh, you know, after their load, and so they ended up closing it because they said, we don't need to create another Starbucks for them. So it was kind of interesting uh, because uh, you mentioned that, you know, leadership sets the tone. One of the challenges is if you have a change in leadership at a company, sometimes if it comes straight from procurement, you know, the push to lower costs is very strong. It's a strong pull. So sometimes you can see a company get whipsawed between uh, leadership tones, and it's hard to change the reputation you have with the carriers. Have you experienced any of that where you see uh, the relationship change with a new new leadership coming in? So I've been on the opposite end of that, where I came into a situation where historically, the only thing that mattered was the rate. Mm -hmm. And the direction we got from this particular customer was they wanted to take some of the variability out in how their transportation costs were sort of rising and falling, sort of depending on the whims of the market. So we changed our carrier acquisition model to move away from, okay, we're going to do a bid every year, to sitting down with a select group of carriers and telling them we wanted to work with them, but there were some conditions. We had very high service standards. We had very tight product integrity requirements. We had certain capacity expectations. We had certain economic expectations, which I would describe as market competitive. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean cheap. It just means they were within the realm of reason of the market. And they had to consistently meet those. And if they were willing to sign up for that, our commitment to them was, we will not bid your business out and change, you know, for a couple of pennies. We're going to allow you to use us as an anchor in your network so that you don't have to worry about our business if you meet all these other conditions. And there was a lot of skepticism from the carriers that we talked to because they were used to, you know, Right. Hearing all the right things. And then at the end of the day, it came down to the rate. And uh, several times uh, during my time, this was with uh, 3PL, the 10 years I was there, you know, we had ebbs and flows in the market. And 
we didn't take the hammer to them when we had the opportunity. And by the same token, they didn't take it to us. So over time, it proved out. But we held to what our I'll call it value exchange was with our carriers. And as long as they kept up their part, you know, we would keep them in our network and we would keep up our part. So I've seen it from that end, but I do understand procurement says you need to lower your cost. I think this gets back to education. It gets back to involving your CFO in the discussion and going back to that total cost, right? as well as what's realistic. I was talking to a motor carrier friend of mine last week, maybe it was the week before, and he said, yeah, it's kind of crazy. Got a call from one of our customers and he wanted me to take a 50% rate reduction. And <laughs> and um, so I said, well, what'd you tell him? I said, well, I told him that if he really insisted on that, just let me know when he wants me to come pick up all my drop trailers because I can't afford to do that. But my guess is someone called up and said, hey, we need to save money. And there's a belief that, well, there's always margin in a rate. And that's not necessarily the case. And you're hearing some of that now with some of these smaller operators, right, who are protesting in Washington, who are parking their trucks because, you know, the rates are not remunerative. And that's going to ebb and flow with the market to some extent. But if you can't maintain, I'll call it a fair return on the portfolio, it probably isn't worth the, the set of investments you've made. And, and I think that requires some conversation and education to get people to understand that. doesn't mean you can't negotiate, you know, hard and, you know, come to terms that will help you meet your goals. But if your end game is to crush the other guy so he'll go out of business or he won't want your business anymore, that's not a good business model. Right. I think coming, you know, over the next couple of years, as you look at what COVID does to the smaller fleet operators, if you move into a position where you force people out of the business, then guess what happens? Capacity tightens, rates go up, and now all of a sudden, everyone who's been working with a hammer and a nail, they're going to swap roles. Yeah, but the truckload market is so fluid, right? Because you're right, capacity can come in and go out very quickly as opposed to you know LTL or rail, right? And so- I, I agree. Some people have been predicting that uh, in Q1 of 2021, we're going to see a big capacity crunch because of the exiting of some of the capacity. I just think it's going to come back in pretty quickly. I just see it as so fluid from the 2008, where there was you know the double whammy with volume went down and then price of fuel was so high. We don't have that condition as much right now. So I don't know. Do you look that there's going to be a big capacity crisis in Q4 or Q1 of next year? I'm not sure it's going to be a crisis, but when you look at the enhanced regulations that have come into play, the more challenges it is to keep good quality drivers, you know, the National Drug and Alcohol Database, uh, if you look at what's happening in the insurance industry, right. it's not just, well, sure, I, I can go buy a truck and I can get into the business, but my cost basis is going up. So there's, I think, two aspects here. Do you have enough capacity and what does that do to the price? But also, what are the fundamental inputs to running a trucking business? You know, what are they doing? You know, right now, fuel is very favorable, but, you know, who knows? Will that change? Right, right. Probably not immediately, but probably down the road. So I, I I think it's going to get interesting. I'm not ready to say, 
yeah, I think it's going to get tight and carriers yeah. are going to, you know, ride off into another 2018 type environment. One of the things that uh, we've been looking at here at, up at MIT, my colleague David Carell has been focused on this, is looking at the actual efficiency of drivers. Because just looking at with ELD data makes this, it's so much easier to start monitoring and seeing where there's inefficiencies. But he found on average that the typical driver long haul truckload was only using about six hours, six and a half, I think was the average of drive time when they have up to 11. And so he did some back of the envelope calculations and found that if every driver found 12 more minutes of uh, drive time, then they would, uh, that would eliminate the driver shortage. So the question is to you is, do you think it's an efficiency play? Do you think that some of these things will just make the driving more efficient? And if it's more efficient, the driver actually gets paid more because they're usually paid by the mile. There's no question that you can increase a carrier's interest in being a motor carrier uh, by making him more efficient so he makes more money. At one of my prior employers, we invested heavily to find inefficient loading and unloading locations. And then we, mm-hmm. would, we would send people out to work with them to improve their scheduling protocols or to, to figure out if it was a yard space issue or, or what the problem was. And what we found is in many cases, by changing how the facilities operated, we could reduce the dwell time of the truck. And over time, we actually were able to move our free time provision instead of requiring two hours free to one hour free, which we found was very attractive to getting carriers who wanted to haul for us. And our dwell time was right around 60 or 62 minutes on average. So it wasn't perfect at every location, but it was markedly improved by focusing on it. So I do think that if you can improve the efficiency of all these networks, you know, the carriers networks, the shippers networks, that yes, you can add capacity. Think about what would happen if every ship receive location went to 24 seven ship receiving, right? What that will do to improve road congestion, what it could do in terms of improving the flow of goods, might even help with air pollution. But the reality is it would drive a lot more efficiency. Now you've got the offset of, well, I've got a pay guys more to work at night and those sorts of things and on the weekends. But I do think that there is a lot of opportunity to improve efficiency. Yeah, I think um, a silver lining that came out of the 2017-2018 capacity crisis was uh, that a lot of shippers got the go-ahead from senior management to actually spend money and change some of these things. I've talked to some companies where they've actually had uh, big initiatives on improving not just their own a turn time at their facilities, but working with their suppliers and their customers, because they finally were able to connect that, you know, if you have long dwell times, you're probably, your rates are going to be high and you're going to have a ripple effect down the line. So yeah, I, I think that's definitely come. So let me ask one more last set of questions before we wrap things up. Turning to recent events, how have you seen the COVID-19 pandemic change the market? And do you see any silver linings coming out of that that we might adapt to later on post-pandemic? So there's certainly been ample press coverage in terms of what COVID-19 has done on transportation, uh, the disruption in the contract and spot markets. You're seeing a rise in carrier bankruptcies, you know, lots of articles now appearing about carriers under pressure on how they have to rebalance their networks because of the disruption in freight flows, the pressure on the smaller carriers, reports of drivers experiencing more delays and loading and unloading because of 
new facility protocols for, for sanitation and containment activity. You know, there's been a huge drop off in volume. And then the huge shift in home delivery demand and curbside pickup behaviors, right? And messengers, not only for consumer goods, but even for higher value goods, such as cars and furniture. So these are all obviously having an impact. I think a number of things that we're going to see stay with us after the pandemic passes is that these new sanitary and containment practices, mm. I think they're going to stay with us. And, yeah. and that's going to require shippers and receivers to work with their providers, to evaluate their operations, to try to make sure that it doesn't result in more dwell time. And to your earlier point, you know, five hours of driving time instead of six or six hours and 15 minutes. So I think that's going to stay. I also think the concept of hazard pay is going to become commonplace, whether it's for the retail worker who's working at the grocery store or the warehouseman or the motor carrier driver um, or the railroad employee. I think people are going to want to be compensated if they're going to take a health risk going forward. So I think that will stick around. I certainly think that you're going to see more curbside pickup and home delivery services remain a larger portion of the market. Right. We have friends that said, I don't think I'm ever going back to a grocery store. And huh. and, and if you can afford, you know, the premium, you know, whenever that sort of washes out, then great. But give you an example. We ordered some batteries during the lockdown from Amazon. And so we ordered two types of batteries that came from two different locations in two different packages. The shipping probably cost, you know, twice as much as the batteries did. That's not a sustainable model. And eventually that will get priced in. But if people are willing to pay for that convenience or take advantage of it while it's affordable, I think you're going to see that. And, and it's convenient. People don't have to go to the store. They can go out and take a bike ride or they can do more work or something else. Yeah, I think you're seeing a lot of change in behavior, not just for uh, shopping and the retail experience, which is definitely going to change, but also in working. I was talking to someone a couple of weeks ago who had never worked from home before because he was in transportation. It had to be there. And uh, he said the first week was tough, but after that, kind of liked it. and <laughs> You could be more efficient. So I think you're right. I think working from home is going to stick around more so. And people are going to say, and some companies have already announced, hey, you know what? We're going to reduce our footprint for offices because, hey, this working at home thing is working. All right. Well, thank you, Paul. I appreciate uh, talking with you today. Sure. Appreciate you having me. All right, everyone. Well, stay tuned for the market update with Dr. Enam Ayub. Welcome to the Over the Road Truckload Market Update for June 18, 2020. In today's market update, we'll discuss the market changes in the last two weeks. Let's start with dry van. Active rates are up by half a percent, spot rates up by 6%, replacement rate is positive 3%. This means the new contract rates are about 3% above the rates being replaced. On the temp control side, active rates down by 1%, spot rates up by 2%, and replacement rate is positive half a percent. Finally, on the intermodal side, active rates are flat, spot rates are down by half a percent, and replacement rate is negative 2%. All right. So, Enam, what, uh, what are the big takeaways for the last two weeks that you see? 
I think the biggest takeaway here is that we see the spot market has turned the corner. Still, the spot rates are lower than contract rates, but we see the spot market rates starting to increase. And then the active rates are still mostly flat, uh, and then the replacement rates are bouncing around as, you know, not showing any any movement on one, one way or the other. That's a really good point because the replacement rates, we have a natural lag there. So we'll have to see how those things settle down. But for spot market rates, what's interesting is it's been down for a while. The last two months for April and May had them down quite significantly on a month-by-month basis. Uh, do you think we're going to keep increasing there? Or do you think it's kind of just recovering some ground a little bit? Is it like in that healthy range? I think primarily recovering, but this whole, you know, the second wave of so-called COVID and, you know, how the businesses are going to uh, react, uh, I think might have an impact on that. But I think as of now, it's recovering. And, you know, if things, the businesses continue to build, I think it's just going to keep going up. And then contract rates themselves, you know, they've been dropping since 2018. We, we were in a a, a trucking recession prior to the pandemic. Um, do you think that's going to keep going down or what do you think is going to happen with the contract rates? I think, I mean, there's only so much it can keep going and, you know, without questioning about the sustainability of the carriers. And, you know, if you are a shipper, you don't want the carriers to go out of business either. My personal belief is that, you know, it's time to turn around, but Currently, due to the depressed rates, you know, driven by the lower demands of the COVID-19, if not, it would have turned around. So I think based on where we are, you know, I think our projection is late summer to fall to things to turn around. Yeah, I know there's some talk about in Q3, you'd see a big peak and capacity crunch. And we're not quite seeing that. Maybe it might even push to 2021. So we'll have to, we'll have to keep monitoring things as states start opening up this week. And over the next couple of weeks to see how those um, openings change the underlying economics and also the threat of a second wave. Um, there's still a lot of concern that uh, opening up is going to cause a second wave that'll shut things back down again. So we'll have to keep our eyes open and see how things progress through the summer. Well, that wraps up this episode. The Freight Find podcast is hosted by Inam Ayub and myself and is produced and edited by Stephanie Bond and Abby Haney. To hear previous episodes, please visit our website at chainalytics.com slash Freightvine. You can subscribe to the Freightvine wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to give us a review. As always, if you have any feedback or questions about what you've heard on the Freightvine or suggestions for what you would like to hear in the future, please send an email to podcast at chainalytics.com. Finally, from all of us at the Freightvine, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new.